The Wiser Podcast. Conversations, public talks, and audio essays from the Witz Institute for Social and Economic Research. Hello, I'm Cesar Mpofu-Walsh, and welcome to The Wiser Podcast. Sean Lavery is a lecturer in the Department of English at the University of Pretoria and researcher on the Oceanic Humanities for the Global South Project at WISER. In this podcast, she explores the concept of Southern Oceanicity, probing the paradigmatic shifts that occur when we consider the world from the perspective of the Southern Ocean. In early 2017, the cartographer Franz Bloch published a world map centred on the South Pole. Rather than the world map we all know, the Mercator projection, which centres on Europe, this one places Antarctica at the centre, surrounded by the vast expanse of the Southern Ocean. All map projections distort whatever lies at their edges. This actually has a name, it's called the Law of the Conservation of Trouble, which is in most familiar maps, usually the Pacific and the Poles. The Mercator projection was intended for European viewers and places Europe nicely in the middle, magnifying and clarifying the Northern Hemisphere. But what about a world map that places instead the South at the centre, which would mean Antarctica in the middle? If every map reveals most about whoever made it, this map might be, as Bloch the cartographer suggested, how a penguin looks at the world. In this podcast, I first use the analogy of a penguin's world map to introduce the question of political and imaginative cartography overlaying the Southern Ocean and the Global South in a time of climate change. In my work, I turn to the literary to address the imaginative impasses that that produces. And I'll share as an example a very short, short story about a Southern voyage and its implications for reimagining the globe and the planet. You'll hear the story. It's from um, a story called Letters Home, read by its author, Kanishk Tharoor. And finally, I return to the penguins at the end. Interestingly, if you centre a world map on the North Pole, um, it looks quite normal. There's very little visible distortion because there simply is not that much land in the Southern Hemisphere to distort. A map centred on the South Pole, however, stretches to absurd proportions the lands of the North. In positions of centrality instead are the countries of Southern Africa, South America and Australasia, which retain their recognisable shapes. The map of the world visually is also overwhelmingly blue. As Meg Samuelson has pointed out, there's 20% more sea in the Southern Hemisphere than the Northern, making it what she calls the Blue Southern Hemisphere. Another way of thinking about this is via the term oceanicity, a term I've borrowed from meteorology, which indicates the degree to which places are overall subject to the influence of the sea. As the opposite of continentality, oceanicity is usually used to describe the climate of a seaside city. Expanding the definition to the planetary points to an overlooked difference between the northern and southern hemispheres, a greater degree of oceanicity that gains in importance the more we learn of the extent to which the southern ocean and Antarctic ice are critical for regulating global climate. This penguin's map of the world, then, is one which simultaneously centres the geographical southern hemisphere and the global south, the poorer countries of the world. Can something similar be done in conceptual and imaginative rather than only cartographical terms? What I've been looking for in my research is a way of bringing together questions that pertain to the global south from the still decolonizing countries of the world, centering social, racial and economic justice, 
while also registering the interrelationship between changing global climates and the currents of the Southern Ocean, from the Southern Hemisphere, centering environmental justice. The Southern Ocean is unique among the other great oceans. Waves, for instance, grow as they travel, and in every other ocean, a wave will eventually hit a continent, which limits its size. But winds and currents in the Southern Ocean can circulate endlessly, with no land barriers to stop them. Waves can, in theory, lap themselves, drawing on infinitely circulating fetch. So all of the records for biggest wave ever have been recorded in the Southern Ocean. The Arctic Ocean, in comparison, is tiny, as well as relatively shallow and calm. Ice in the Arctic only gets um, to about four meters thick, while Antarctic ice can be four kilometers thick. The Southern Ocean exemplifies the characteristics we ascribe to oceans in general, vastness, turbulence, drifting. But also the Southern Ocean is characterized not just by physical, but semiotic drift. Historian Alessandro Antonello notes that the Southern Ocean has been variously named the Antarctic Seas, the Antarctic Ocean, the Southern Seas, the Southern Oceans, the ICC, or as the southerly extent of the Atlantic, Indian or Pacific Oceans. It was actually only officially christened by the International Hydrographic Organization 20 years ago in 2000. Oceanographic data is drawn overwhelmingly from the Northern Hemisphere. Leading ocean oceanic anthropologist Stefan Helmrich has proposed that oceanography also needs a theory from the south, like that proposed by the Komarovs. Amid the Komarovs and other urgent calls for things like theory from the south, also thinking from the south, or in this case, oceanography from the south, what I've been exploring is the potential for literary and imaginative thinking from the southern ocean. So how then to begin to imagine a position in the southern ocean, but also metaphorically from the south? It is, of course, for all the reasons I've described, a very difficult place to think about or to think from. In my research, I turn to literary and cultural texts for their imaginatively elastic approaches to the otherwise unthinkable. Although largely unnarrated and because uninhabited, points of contact with the Southern Ocean do appear in works of fiction. I've explored the ways in which perspectives from drifting ships in southern seas are imagined in both Euro-canonical Southern Ocean literature by Coleridge, Conrad and Melville, and, but also, in, and more importantly, in narratives from and about the Global South by authors like Yvette Christiansa, Lauren Bukas, Mahale Mashigo and Kanishk Tharoor. To give you some sense of the literature, I've asked Kanishk Tharoor to read from his collection Swimmer Among the Stars. The collection was reviewed by writer and climate change thinker Amitav Ghosh as the rare kind of writing that is finding a way to incorporate the improbable probabilities of climate change into the limits of realist narration, and therefore maybe into a kind of political and public imagination. He'll read um, part eight from the story Letters Home. In the upper reaches of a medieval European map, one of those beautiful Italian planispheres drawn from Arab traditions of cosmography with the south at the top and north at the bottom, bobs an enormous Indian caravel. You could miss the detail and think it is only another European ship, another plucky foot soldier in the white man's conquest of the sea. The inscription tells another story. The ship is an Indian junk built with four masks housing 60 cabins worth of merchants. 
Though large, it was so ingeniously designed that it needed only one tiller. Its navigators didn't require compasses because they had, in their ranks, a full-time astrologer who would steady himself on the deck with his astrolabe and shout out directions from the stars. This Indian vessel in 1420 sailed to the southern tip of Africa, called Diab by the monkish cartographer. From there, the ship journeyed 2,000 miles west, finding only water and wind, not even ice or penguins, or the dribbled little islands of the South Atlantic. The Indians decided to turn back. The astrologer had lost his bearings. In this way, Indians missed the best chance they had to discover Indians. Paul Gilroy, author of the influential The Black Atlantic, which led theorizing about oceans in relation to race, argues in more recent work that invocations of climate change and the Anthropocene risk falling into much older habits of anti-humanist thought. These have long been critiqued by the black radical tradition that, required by slave-driven capitalism, addressed the boundaries between the human and non-human, strenuously resisting the construction of black humanity as an object or property. Gilroy has proposed adopting a sea-level perspective in order to address this tendency in Anthropocene thought to forget racialized histories. To develop a properly planetary humanism requires what he calls a lowly, watery orientation that might yield an offshore humanism. The Ruhr story references the famous medieval Mapamundi of the cartographer monk Frau Maro that places the south at the top and the north at the bottom. It's a map referenced in several post-colonial stories of the sea, like Abdul Razak Gurna's Mid-Morning Moon and more obliquely in Gosha's more recent novel Gun Island. Like the penguin projection, this kind of upside-down, south-centred map of the world highlights suppressed southern perspectives, and not only in orientation but inclusion of the Indian caravel that travels via Africa. Through its focus on the Indian ship's exploratory voyage south, the story places this tilted world in conversation with the oceanicity of the southern hemisphere. The Indian explorers, of course, in the ironic ending, miss both the ice and the indigenous Yagan peoples of Tierra del Fuego, but they discover the southern ocean instead. Of course, the other thing they miss is the chance to see penguins. In the story of human globalization, which at one level surfaces a suppressed south-south version of lateral connectedness, there's a further layer of vertical marginality or hiddenness. It's worth noting that the apparent emptiness in human terms of the Southern Ocean is in fact inversely proportional to its exploitation, as histories of whaling demonstrate. Whales were hunted almost to extinction in the 20th century, as were seals before them and penguins before that. Penguins have actually thrived in the last century because whaling took out most of the competition for their primary food source, krill. But now penguin chicks are starting to freeze on their nests because their feathers aren't waterproof yet when they're young and dry Antarctic snow is turning to drenching rain as global temperatures rise. Plastic is being found in the deepest trenches, including of the Antarctic region, and attempts to map the seafloor for science are already being put to use facilitating deep-sea mining set to begin in 2021. Are there ways of convening a planetary and offshore humanism that can encompass also the penguin's perspective? Not so much the penguin itself, as a perspective which reaches from land to ice, across multiple species, and not only across the sea surface, 
but to its plundered depths. In another short story by Ursula Le Guin from the middle of the last century, we see a speculative glimpse of a penguin's view. The story is written as an entry in the science fictional Journal of the Association of Therolinguistics, which attaches the prefix thero for wild beast to indicate animal languages. In the case of penguin language, the author goes, the extreme difficulty of reading penguin has been very much lessened by the use of the underwater motion picture camera. By constant repetition and patient study, many elements of this most elegant and lively literature may be grasped. The author refers to the poetry of the short-necked, flipper-winged water writers, a kinetic literature that includes a work called Under the Iceberg by the Adelie Penguins. Lauren Bukas has also gone under the ice in her story Her Sealskin Coat, following deep-diving Weddell seals. And Mahale Mashigo has written of being eye-level with whales in a submarine future on the southern Cape coastline. Yvette Christiansa more obliquely in her poetry invokes a language of water, of grains of salt blown up from the ocean. An elemental language which resists, squabbles between possession and longing, and instead occupies the lower ranges of confidence. Forgoing what Gilroy might call high-altitude theorizing in favor of sea-level theory, one that embraces both species humility and, as I'm arguing here, the lowly, watery hemisphere. Following these writers and thinkers, and motivated by swiftly rising seas, we might find ways to assume a different critical position, southern, oceanic, and even submarine, tilting to a planetary perspective from below. <laughs>